guys. Welcome back to the Short Story Long Podcast, where we share the work and play of working class Midwestern millennials. I'm your host, Sam Derrickson, joined by my co-host, Andrew Dial. What's up, guys? And another new guest host, Mr. Cody Willenberg. What up? They finally convinced me to come do this, so here we are. Kind of a surprise visit tonight, actually. Just kind of popped in on them and... It was affectionately known on all previous episodes as Boss Man. <laughs> That's what they call me. So uh, let's start with that. Let's talk about being Boss Man. Oh man, what do you want to know about it? So maybe we should just do the the question. Well, let's start with let's start with how do you know us, me and Dozer? I guess that would circle back around to kind of the whole Boss Man thing. But uh, I opened my Cedar Motorsports on Jefferson Street in 2011, and I think Dozer was quite possibly one of the first guys to walk in the door. Wanting shocks charged for your Jeep, Sam's Jeep. Mm-hmm. And yep. uh, we did it for him. And then later he brought in a set of carburetors, I think also from, from your jet ski. Sam's jet ski. Okay, yep. And then uh, I put you on my phone at that point as uh, Sam Dozer's friend. And to this very day, as close as friends as we are, you are still on my phone as Sam Dozer's friend. So, yep. uh, Sam is still on my phone as Sam YJ. Yep. Um, so we call you boss man. At first, it was like you hated it. I did. I, I don't like the like the title of being a boss or bossing people around. That's not what I like. I like at all. But it's kind of grown and stuck as a nickname for me from here on out. You know, where, similar similar to how Dozer adopted Dozer. Where where I got it from was. Do you remember the cartoon Cat Dog? Uh, yeah, I remember the cartoon. But half cat half dog, and they lived in a half bone half fish yes, house. Yes. And they had a boss and that they call boss man. And like, that's just, I don't know. That's just where I got it. And I just always call him boss man. You're probably one of the first ones to ever call it. And it kind of has always stuck. Since and, and I've never really worked for you, you know, as an employee. And I just, I don't know why I started calling you that, but. It, uh, it definitely has stuck, you know, 22 employees later, here we are. And I didn't do it. Cause I didn't do it to like be mean or make fun of you. Like I just started calling you because you're just, you know, motherfucker in charge. And then, <laughs> and, and then we found out you didn't like it. And then and we that, found out you didn't like it. And that's really when we started calling you that. <laughs> and I remember Peyton one day is like, you know, he doesn't like that. I was like, really? Okay. Tell me more. <laughs> and then, and then again, she was like, you know, it really upsets him when you say that. Like, yeah, we're friends. That's what friends do. Exactly. <laughs> and then last year at KOH, she's like, he doesn't like when you call him boss man. And Cody's like, I'm over it. It's fine now. <laughs> it's whatever. She's yeah. got your back, though. It she's would not be... going to let anybody call you boss man. That you don't want it. It would be weird if I wasn't called boss man this day. Find a woman who won't let your friends call you boss man. That's goals. <laughs> That's, that, is, that is goals for sure. So... Uh, that leads us into number two, boss man. What is your occupation? So uh, what I'm most probably most known for is own CW Motorsports. I've owned it now for 11 years. Um, since I purchased a company called Tire Spine that makes uh, end of inflation devices for UTV tires. Uh, also have 11 rental properties now, down two because I just sold two. And um, yeah, that's it, right? Uh, is it it? I don't. Is it it? I feel like we're missing something on that. Oh, the metal shop. The metal, metal shop. shop. Yeah, yeah. I do own a, a separate company that manufactures some parts that we do. So yeah. So um, I'll go ahead and say this one more time. This is the short story long podcast. Um, you're not paying for radio airtime now, so we can <laughs> we can expand on this a little bit. So 
Um, tell us how you kind of just like give us the 10 minute version of how CW started. So, um, I was working at the Honda dealership. I'll back up. Let's back this up. This is a short story long. So we got time, right? Absolutely. Although I completely make fun of your episodes because they're so long, but here we go. <laughs> this is why they get so long. Here we go. Uh, when I was 14 years old, I rode my bicycle to the Honda dealership and, uh, it was, a, it was one of the last weeks of school. Like we get out of school early and I uh, needed a spark plug. That's all I needed. I went in, I seen Greg Hess for a spark plug. He goes, what are your plans this summer, kid? I said, ride my motorcycle like every kid does all summer long, you know? Because I grew up in a neighborhood where we were, like, not in town, but we weren't, like, out of town completely. Like, I would say kind of maybe like the suburbs of T-Town. And uh, every kid on the street had a motorcycle. So we would literally ride from sun up to sundown every day. Had trails cut in the woods yeah, a whole night. over the place, yeah. And uh, that's what we did all summer was ride. And uh, I came from a... Um, I wouldn't say a, a, a poor family, but a family that wasn't real well off. So I kind of had the old beater motorcycle and, uh, I did whatever I could do to keep it running. So I went up there and I, I said, I'm riding a motorcycle all summer. And I went home and I'll never forget. I told my mom that I was offered a job at the Honda dealership today. My mom called my dad, my dad chewed me out. Next thing I know, the very next day, my dad hauls me in there and, uh, I start working that day. They didn't even let me leave. Like, oh, well. <laughs> If you want a job, we'll, we'll put you to work. My Thanks dad. for showing up. <laughs> exactly. So I worked at the Honda dealership at the age of 14. I remember I had to get like a work permit. I had to go to the courthouse, sign all these papers. I only worked so many hours. Got paid chump change to do it, you know, back then. Because, you know, as a as a minor, they could even pay you less than like minimum wage. And uh, honestly, it was the best thing ever happened to me, for sure. So we talk about your dad all the time on this episode because, you know, he's mean dean talking about Mopars and stuff. And you had, you know, a motorcycle that always needed maintenance and care. Did your dad ever help you wrench on motorcycles? Or was he like, I don't really care about those. You're on your own. <laughs> my dad actually hated motorcycles. My mom was the one that was in the motorcycle. She had motorcycles as a kid. My mom's the one who bought us the motorcycle. So my dad really was never into the motorcycle thing. And uh, until I was an adult, um, really had nothing to do with my motorcycle stuff. One time... Uh, I did blow a motorcycle up after it sat for like a whole year. I convinced him to help me put it back together. But uh, he was definitely not like pro motorcycle whatsoever. Okay. So after that, I, uh, I, I continued working at Weber's all through high school. I did like the DO program where you work half a day and then go to, uh, go to school half a day, work, work the other half of the day. And I actually graduated college like early um, due to that. And went off to MMI, which is a motorcycle school down in Orlando, Florida. And I loved it down there. I had no desire at all to come home. I was making big money working down there. I mean, Florida's an amazing place to live. Tons of girls as a 20-year-old kid. I mean, what more could you ask for, right? Right, yeah. And uh, this was back like 07, 08-ish. And that's when the economy crashed. And I was, as a to back up a little bit, I was working at Weber's as like a technician as a junior and senior in high school. Like I was one of their main technicians in their shop. So when I went down to Florida, you know, to apply for a new job, it was kind of strange because I didn't need the entry level job. Like I was already above the entry level motorcycle stuff at that time, even though I was going to school for it. And I, so I finally got a dealership that I was, a, I was a technician there too. Um, went to school half a day, worked half a day. And it was, it was great. I absolutely loved it down there. Uh, Barely pass high school, go to college, Orlando, Florida, you know, partying, living the dream, um, going to school, graduate college, top of my class with a 4.0, no desire to come home. The economy crashed, 07, 08, 09-ish, that's when I was kind of down there. Okay. And I stayed down there for about six months, um, 
I was paid 100% flat rate. I'll never forget it to this day. I was making $26 an hour back in 2008-ish. And uh, as a 20-year-old kid, that's big money, you know? And But I was only paid if there was work in the door, and there was no work coming in at all. I remember sitting on my toolbox multiple days, but if you weren't there, if something did come in, you didn't get it. Sure. And the Honda dealership had been had messaged me a couple times. I remember I was just home for Thanksgiving and uh, had went by there and they're like, hey, if you ever want to come back, you know, we got a place for you. And I sat on my toolbox one day and I left early from work and I was like, you know what? I have to go home because you know, rent was $1,700 and uh, $1,750 a month down there for a, just a two bedroom apartment. And although I was making really good money and I had a decent savings set aside, I, I couldn't make it anymore. So I was kind of forced to, uh, to come home and I just drove home that day. I called the Honda dealership up and I said, Hey, does your offer still stand? And we worked out a deal that day driving home. I take a big pay cut to come back home, but I knew I had no other choice but to, to do that. And home I came. Then, uh, worked at the Honda dealership for, oh man. So that would have been like, oh nine. I didn't leave there till 11. So I worked there for three more years. And uh, I was in 2011, I was in an accident where I was T-boned by a semi riding a scooter and broke like the whole left side of my body. I was in the hospital for 30 days, off work for seven months. And when I was off, I was already kind of doing some stuff in my mom's garage. But when I got hurt, I had to hire someone to come in and like do the work that was already there because I'd been sitting there now for two months because I'd been, in, I'd been hurt. And at that time, I realized like, you know what, I think I could do this for myself. Mm -hmm. And, uh because I was paying someone to do the work and I was still making, making some money off of it. And I went back to the Honda dealership and I, it was at that point I had like a little bit of a mindset change of like, I want to do this on my own. So I started like really paying attention to like how the business was working and uh, what I would need to do if I was going to do it myself. And I was kind of keeping an eye on for, for buildings or for properties. And I'd, I'd seen a couple and looked at a couple in Evingham, but nothing really stuck and found the property on Jefferson street. And, uh, had a bit of a conversation with my boss at the Honda dealership at the time, and that was my last day there. And CW uh, Motorsports started, uh, morphed to December. I opened a motorcycle shop in the December 1 of 2011. Like the most suicidal time of the whole motorcycle career to try to open a motorcycle shop is in the dead of winter, and I, I, we did it. Here we are. Never looked back since. Never looked back since, nope. So my, my favorite part of that story is uh, when you said that your mom cried yeah. when, you, when you quit your job. Yeah, so uh, my mom... You know, again, we, we didn't grow up as a family with a whole bunch of money. So, I, you know, I had a job and I had health insurance and retirement. And I told my mom I was going to quit my job and do it my own. And she, like, was not for it. She, you know, resisted it, didn't want me to do it, cried, told me I was making the wrong decision. And, uh, you know, it's hard to keep looking past those things to move forward whenever, you know, there's close people that are telling you that it's not a good thing to do. And, hey, I, I would never look back again, you know? And that's what Grant Cardone says you got to watch out for. It's not the haters, because the haters you know hate you. It's the naysayers, the people who give you advice like that because they care about you and they're worried about you. Like, those are who you have to worry about. So Cody's idol, Dave Ramsey, <laughs> uh, sold his one millionth book, and his grandmother still said, Dave, when are you going to get a real job? You know, uh, I, uh, I think my dad listens, so I'm going to say this anyway. Um, love you, dad. But I think my dad, um, for many, many years questioned if I was doing the, making the right moves and doing the right thing. And I think it wasn't until just recently my old man was like, you know what? 
he's gonna be all right you know my dad always supported me but he never would like come out and like tell me or like you know so yeah uh, it wasn't until recent years my old man's kind of like you know i think this i think this kid's gonna do it he'll be he'll be okay maybe maybe he'll have an okay living yeah. yeah so um i guess let's move into question three what are your hobbies i mean off-road and power sports is about all i know it's all i've done my whole life so you know obviously uh the off-road industry is something I'm very passionate about, and it's a career I do, plus it's a hobby. And a lot of people have a hard time with making their hobby their career. And uh, there's some times in, in there that it, it's tough, you know, but uh, I've learned to kind of separate it and enjoy it, and uh, and I very much so do. Um, other than that, you know, I, I really enjoy um, classic cars and, and drag racing. It's something my family is very passionate about, and I'm able to kind of spend some time with them doing that. So it kind of breaks it up, but... Uh, I mean, really, I'm, at the end of the day, I'm I'm a hardcore gearhead. Anything off-road, horsepower, you know, it kind of gets me going. So let's let's rewind a little bit because we have a, a pretty broad listener base of like seven or eight people, and uh, <laughs> um, I, I can recall when we were first hanging out, you had CW Motorsports, and like you you just mentioned that some people have a hard time making their hobby their career and I can remember very vividly several times where you know doing the motorcycle thing you were also helping a local gal that was doing uh, ATV motocross and you would go to the racetrack in support of your racer Mm -hmm. and people would come up you owning an off-road business, hey, can you do this on my my bike's doing this And, and ask you for advice or ask you for help and I can remember like it was something you tolerated for a long, long time. And then like there was a breaking point where you just were absolutely frustrated because nothing you could do to keep people away from you to where you could enjoy your actual weekend. So I guess talk to the the younger business owner that's in their hobby as a career. What what did it take to make that separation for you? Oh man, that's a tough one. And to this day, it's why I don't go to the bar. You know, I hate talking about job and I think a lot of people what I'm learning now as I get older is a lot of people they don't they don't want to talk to you about your job but that's all they know how to talk to you about so that's what they talk to you about um, and for me I always wanted to help people and I help people that's what I did that's what you know it's kind of how I got going is and, and still do but I was so passionate about it I wanted to help everybody I possibly could and then I realized there's a kind of a point where it's like you know I'm very knowledgeable I'm very passionate about this and uh this is what I do and I need to be compensated for what I'm, for what I'm doing. At that point, I realized that if I can't give all my knowledge and my information away, I had this conversation with someone today and it was talked about, you know, why should an independent shop be higher than a dealer? And here's why I'll tell you why we're kind of getting off subject here, but price point wise, an independent shop should always be higher than dealer. And here's why the independent guy is passionate about it. It's what he does on the weekends. He has more experience more knowledge than almost any dealer or dealer personnel out there. Most of these dealerships, these guys that work inside the dealerships don't even, don't even, don't even do this as a hobby. They're not, they're not passionate about it. They don't, they don't do it on the weekend. A lot of these guys don't even have off-road vehicles. So to me, it's why the independent guy should be higher priced than the, than the local dealer, because they're going to give you real life, real world experience. So in the automotive industry, it's, it's, it's evident from an outsider looking in as a tool dealer, I've, I service the independents and I service the dealerships and not all technicians, but 
but broad strokes here, generaliz- generally speaking, your dealership technician is extremely knowledgeable on his brand, whereas an independent guy has to be knowledgeable on everything, and he can have a different point of view coming from having a wide knowledge base diagnosing a certain issue where like a dealership for just for argument's sake let's say a dodge dealer he's very very knowledgeable on the dodge vehicle but give him anything kind of outside of his normal scope he's he's struggling whereas like an independent guy sees everything and kind of knows a little bit about everything and he can bring more of that information to the table well yeah exactly and even the next step on that like the dealerships are forced to kind of use dealer they're, they're very cookie cutter, you know, Dodge wants you to use Mopar parts. And I'm not saying that, you know, all OEM parts are bad because they're definitely not. But like there's a there's certain I'll just say this out loud. Players connecting rods are junk. They're they're not a good replacement part. They're they're bad. And uh, when you're you know redoing an engine, you don't want to use players connecting rods. There's their major fail point. And most players dealerships are going to rebuild with players connecting rods, right? Mm-hmm. And aftermarket or an independent shop isn't going to do that. Like they're going to give you a better product because they know what fails and what doesn't fail, and they're not forced to force the OEM stuff on you. Gotcha. So one one thing I've always been jealous about is you have a hobby that you can get parts and supplies at dealer cost. <laughs> that makes it a, that makes it really nice to own super I've, super. I've always high been kind of uh, jealous about that. High end vehicles for sure. Yeah, that's like the, that's like uh, the the Dodge dealer getting employee pricing on the new Hellcat or whatever. Yeah, it's yeah, a exactly. It's a it's I, a perk. I kind of got that on tractors a little bit, I guess. Yeah. You know, if something was a good deal, you know, I might just keep that for myself. Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I I see that in in my occupation where like you know the the guy who's you know the go to tractor guy has a pretty darn nice tractor of his own like the Jansen boys up there in Sigel you know they're worldwide known for redoing old tractors and they have you know kind of the cream of the crop when it comes to their choice of the, of the litter so for sure um and I was kind of probably opposite of that when I had the metal shop going full time I mean I had some of the best two benders and software and everything and nothing I owned had any custom fab work done to it <laughs> Well, at that it, point, at that point, I was buying everything I could to bolt onto my Jeep. Well, it's like like Nick was talking about with him and his dad owning the tractor shop. Like they would buy a junk tractor, and they'd fix it because that's what they did for a living. But they never had a good tractor to use because as soon as it was good, it was for sale. Yeah, and you know that's something like you're saying, Dozer. You just never hit the point with the metal shop where you're just able to enjoy that stuff. I mean, there was. I mean, back before I opened the shop, like I was racing motocross every weekend, had brand new race bikes, um, nice toy hauler, you know, then for years I went with nothing. I mean, it wasn't until 15. So from 11 to 15, I had basically nothing when I bought that first 1000 XP. And pretty much since then, I've always had a year old or maybe a two year old razor um, from 15 on. So, you know, I went four or five years with nothing, uh, you know, until I could get to where I are. And now, I mean, I'll buy the newest, latest, greatest one that comes out every single time just because that's what we do, you know? Sure. And right. it's almost a, an obligation at this point. Yeah, you know, um, we're, you know we're, we're to the point where we're manufacturing parts for certain machines, and it's, uh, you know, you want to get the new one so you know what fails and what doesn't fail, and you can, uh, you, know, you know, deeply help the industry as a whole. So one thing that sticks out in my mind is when you're on Jefferson Street, I was in there probably selling you some pins or some huggies or something selling broadheads and, to the deer right and and <laughs> uh and uh 
uh, Kyle Klo came in. And he was big into, like, riding mountain bikes and stuff. And I remember you had, like, a big conversation with him about riding mountain bikes. You're like, I want to never – I remember you're like, I want to never see a motorcycle again. I don't have any interest to do any motorcycle stuff. I I want to – you know, like, I need something else. And I remember you talking to him, and I, I was just watching. I was like, man, this is kind of weird, you know. I'd, and uh, and I still remember even up until a couple of years ago, like, you had a motorcycle – and you rode it once, maybe once a year. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You definitely. had one, but you're, you know, whatever. Yeah. And, you know, that goes back to, like, you know, working on the business and working in the business. You know, I was still deeply working in the business, not on the business at that time. And it's wearing when you do it 14, 15, 16 hours a day. I mean, there's, there comes a point where, you know, it, it is hard to separate hobby and, and passion and, and career all from it, you know. And, uh, not only just working in the working in the industry as like a technician, but as as a shop owner and trying to grow what you have to the scale that I was trying to grow at the time. I mean, it, it took all you, all, you know, every spare ounce of energy and time. There's sometimes you didn't want to see another motorcycle or an ATV, and you damn sure didn't want to go to the bar and talk about it. Right. Well, moving on, what was your first car? So I've listened many times, and I've always thought about this question because my Technically, technically, my very first car was a Dodge Shadow, but it never ran and I never drove it. Okay. Bill Taylor had one. Um, I was like maybe 12 or 13 years old. Um, you know, when you're that age, you're kind of doing some chore money and blah, blah, blah. And Bill wanted $50 for it. And I had saved up $50 and I was going to buy that car from Bill Taylor and I was going to start drag racing it because as a, as a kid growing up, my family drag raced. I spent a lot of time at the drag strip. And that was back when, like, Daryl Alderman and the big Mopar guys were racing, you know, tube chassis, slam, Dodge Shadows. And that was, like, the cool car to have as a drag car. And I was like, that's what I want. And he had one with a blown-up engine. And I think up until literally maybe four or five years ago, it was still at my grandma Willenberg's. Really? The other collector cars, yeah. Um, so that was my technically my first car I ever bought for myself. After that, I... Uh, as a 16-year-old kid, my uh, my dad gave me an offer to build me a 70 um, dart swinger. And, of course, I turned my nose up at it because no 16-year-old kid wants to daily drive a 70 dart swinger. He wants a four-wheel drive pickup truck because that's what the girls like, right? Uh-huh. And I got a 98 regular cab long bed four-wheel drive Dodge truck. And to this day, that's probably one of my biggest regrets within my car life that I've ever did because my little brother played my dad just right. My little brother said, sure, dad. I'll take the uh, the 70 Duster, and uh, mom isn't going to make me daily drive that, so then my mom bought him a vehicle. <laughs> so he got the best of both worlds. Damn kids. Yeah. Okay. That so, kind of reminds me of when I was younger, my dad always had a Cabela's credit card that he got points on, and super long story short, my dad shoots a now discontinued muzzleloader called a White, and I thought they were super cool. I really liked them. They shot real big, heavy bullets. And he offered to buy me and my brother muzzleloaders for Christmas. I, no, I'm just, I'm just going to shoot yours. I don't, I don't want that. Well, my brother got a brand new Thompson Center Omega, and I got, like, socks and underwear for Christmas. And, like, looking back, I should have told him I wanted one, and I could still have used his gun, you know, and yes, then I would have got yes. a gun. Like, I didn't get a gun. And it, it, yeah. Yep. Just the, the, the babies of the family know how to play. They do, man. I, they sure do. Tell you what. 
So um, I guess this next one's going to be pretty obvious, but for our listeners, what got you into cars? So like I said, my whole family has been into cars my whole my whole life. I mean, my dad is probably one of the most well-known Mopar guys in the area, maybe in the state and quite possibly in the country. If you start, you know, we go to these big Mopar races across the world, people know him from all, their pl- all over the place. So I grew up at the racetrack. I mean... From a baby, I was at the racetrack. I, I think my mom said I was two months old and the first time I went. And, I mean, we grew up there every single weekend. That's what we did. When I turned eight years old, back then, you had to be eight to drive a junior dragster. Um, on my eighth birthday, my, my dad got me a junior dragster, and uh, I spent my whole childhood at the racetrack racing junior dragsters, you know. So never had the fastest car or the best car in the place because, you know, we didn't have the money to have that at the time. But, hey, we were still racing, and. Looking back at it now, my dad made a lot of sacrifices so we could go racing, and that's pretty awesome. That's super awesome, yeah. That's uh, that is, that is one thing that no one can ever say about your dad. He was a good dad. He was a good dad. That yeah. is for sure, hundred uh, percent. He's a good dad. <laughs> I meant, I meant you can't can't say he's not, whatever. You know what I meant. You can't say he's not a good dad. But like, uh, um, like you like you were saying, like sacrificing whatever so that you and your brother could enjoy. Yeah, I mean. When we first started, when I first started racing, my dad was still racing when I was racing. And then towards the end of that, you know, my dad kind of quit racing the weekends that I was racing because they didn't have juniors every weekend, but they had them some weekends. And the weekends that I was racing, dad wouldn't race. And then when my brother started racing, my dad quit. My dad quit racing completely for the few years that we were racing together. And then uh, when I outgrew the car, my brother got my car. And then my dad started racing a little bit again. And he was only kind of taking care of one car, but. He did, man. I'll give it to him. Uh, he made lots and lots of sacrifices so we could go racing. We never really did get to go to the, the big di- races, the, you know, long distance and stuff. But again, man, we were growing up racing junior dragsters as a kid. It's something I'll never forget, for sure. It's a core memory at this point. 100% it is, yep. It's interesting how growing up, you know, being a shithead kid, like you can, like the, the, the actual, you know, blood, sweat, and tears can get lost on you. Like you don't understand, you know, what your parents went through or whatever. And you're like, Oh, I want to do this. I want to do this. And they had, they had a reason why, but then as you, as you age and you become an adult and you realize what adult responsibilities are. And like, you look back and I know that I do this all the time. I think about, you know, like just a random memory pop in my head and I'll be like, well, we were too broke to do that. And I was so mad at my dad, you know, for not being able to do something so stupid or trivial. And, you know, he sacrificed to, to give me what I needed, not what I wanted, you know, and it just kind of, kind of hits home when, when you get to that point and you realize what it takes to be an adult and, uh, you think, you know what? He, uh, <laughs> he did a lot. For he, sure, he, yeah. he, he wasn't so bad after all. So, um, so that's how he got you into cars. What is the favorite car? that you have ever owned? Oh, man, that's a tough one. That's going to probably be one of the cars I own now. Um, I, I bought a C8 Corvette with, I'll be honest with you, full intentions of selling it because the market was so crazy. And, man, I just can't get my heart up to list it because I absolutely love that car. It's got 94 miles on it. I've never drove it, but it is quite possibly, it is just a freaking cool car. Um, then the Hellcat. I mean, you can't get any more rowdier and still have AC and cruise control than a Hellcat. I don't care what anyone says. Like, there's just something about getting all the horsepower you could ever ask for and still click cruise on and drive to St. Louis to get a beer and go home. And it is just, is that is a, those cars are just badass. Yeah, I, uh, 
I still have yet to drive the C8. I don't know if I'll ever drive it, but one of these days when it's a piece of shit, <laughs> worn out, whatever, I'd like to drive it. But uh, no, I, I was saying on the on the earlier episode that when we went to Bowling Green after I bought my GTX, I was all about the Hellcat. And then you bought yours, and I drove it once, and I realized there's no way I can own one because I'm not responsible enough. You know, unlike Sam and Dozer both, I, I mean, I don't get into the super nostalgic stuff. I think it's cool, but at the end of the day, like, I wanted to enjoy driving them, um, and I don't have the free time to work on them like a lot of people do, and the old cars you have to work on. I mean, they leak oil. They're just, they're just constant issues, and when I have spare time and this may sound crazy to some people but like i don't have a whole bunch of free time but when i do i want to enjoy it and i don't want to have to worry about like is it going to start is the carburetor mixture wrong blah 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 blah. i just press the old button in the hellcat and we can go terrorize with the best of them and i can go home put the car cover on it and start it six months later and guess what it's going to start it's going to go it's going to have no troubles at all like maybe have a little tire pressure light on maybe maybe not you know that's that's all i got to worry about and that's an interesting perspective from somebody who's got one of the biggest snap-on toolboxes made full of snap-on tools. <laughs> like, you could work on it if you wanted to. You're just like, nope, I'm yeah, good. It's just not something that I want to spend my spare time doing. I mean, I, I worked on stuff for so many years, for so many hours. I, I honestly don't really enjoy working on cars. That, to, me, to be honest, it's just not something I, I enjoy doing. My dad used to always tell a joke about the TV repairman. Have I ever told you this joke? Uh-uh. So when he was playing music, it was like almost every time he played music, he'd tell this joke. And uh, this guy moves in at this house across the street. And uh, I said, what's this guy do for him? Oh, he, he, he works for the TV company. He's a TV repairman. And Storm blows through and blows the TV antenna over on, on top of the house. And it he never did fix it. And... Six months goes by, and he finally goes and introduces himself to the guy. And, you know, what do you do for a living? Oh, work for the TV company. Okay, cool. And they get to talking about coffee, you know, around coffee table or whatever. And uh, like, oh, yeah, Jim down the road, he, he's TV repairman. Do you see his antenna? It's broke over on his house. He must know something we don't. I bet he gets all the channels. You know, he knows all the secrets. So the guy gets up on his roof and breaks the antenna off on his house, and he gets no channels. Well, the next time he's out in the yard, he said, hey, you know, I, I broke my antenna like yours, and oh, I can't get any channels. Like, what's the deal? Why do you have yours broken? He's like, oh, shit, dude. My, I spend all day working on TV antennas. I don't want to freaking touch mine at the end of the day. So I could totally understand how, you know, you wouldn't want to work on stuff because you spent so long working, which um, my buddy, our buddy, Scott Blessing, he's a listener, and I shout out to him. I would be remiss not to tell the world that Cody's toolbox is six inches smaller than <laughs> Scott's toolbox. Oh, God. You know, buddies have those kind of competitions, and I'll never forget, I just bought that <laughs> toolbox, and I'd sent some pictures of Scott and blah, blah, blah. Well, guess what? Scott orders one. He calls me up. Hey, what size did you get? And I told him, and he just starts laughing. Yeah. I don't even know what it cost at the time. It was a couple thousand bucks. I just spent a couple thousand bucks more to get one six inches bigger, you know? <laughs> That's what friends do. So then Cody had to get a locker to put on it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, shoot. Um, well, so your C8 would be your favorite car, right? Yeah, I'd probably say so, yeah. What would be your dream car? So Any my, car. My dream car would be a Resto Mod for sure. So probably like 69 Roadrunner that is like full independent, like all the new technology, engine and driveline and suspension, but 
old school exterior. I, I even want the new interior in it. So basically put a, a 69 Roadrunner body on your Hellcat. Perfect. That would be right up my alley. Bring yeah. it over. We'll yeah. start cutting. <laughs> yeah. You know, so deep resto mod, you know, big time resto mod. Not just like, you know, new stool, hemi swapped, you know, old car. But I want new suspension. I want heat, AC, heated seats, the whole nine. Touchscreen radio. 69 Roadrunner, yep. That would be Bluetooth, pretty. Bluetooth, that would be cool. That would be pretty sweet. That would be pretty sweet. Kevin Hart has one of those, and it is gorgeous. I've seen it at SEMA this year. It's a beautiful car. This is a Super B, but. There's same. no way you could fit in Kevin Hart's car. So, <laughs> for those of you who don't know, Cody's a giant. Um, so, what is your favorite car story and or memory? Oh, man. You know, I've been around cars my whole life. So, like, there's, these. that's a tough one for me. I mean, it could be the time that uh, I was with my dad and he bought his current race car. He still has. Uh, I could be the time I, you know, won over at Bowling Green, Kentucky or London, Kentucky in my dad's car and then completely wiped out the quarter panel on it, trailering it home. Uh, Whoops. <laughs> um, I mean, it could be some of the times that we were just cruising cars at, uh, around town and I had that 69 with a small block Chevy in it. And we like overnight put the motor in a dozer's garage and I, man, I don't know. I've got a whole bunch of, uh, car stories and memories. I can't think I can complete pinpoint just one. That was like, that was it. That was the, that was the time. Mm-hmm. That's fair. What would be, what's, what was your favorite car memory with that? With me, with you for sure. When, when we were thrashing to get that 69 Roadrunner done for the car show and then we did it and then didn't go to the car show and then didn't go to the car show, but we did, we did go to gateway. Yes, we did go to Gateway, and they wouldn't let me race. Or you, who wouldn't? I didn't get to go. To you race. didn't get to go. You didn't get to race for you some. Your cooling stage lights, and they were pissed. Oh man, <laughs> I was there. That was a hoot. Which we were like inching forward, and that's why. The... <laughs> so the oh, the catch can on my car had some coolant right on the top of it, and the the guy running the staging lanes was like, uh, "You need to drain this." I was like. Pfft. All right, so I drained it right there in the staging lanes, and then we rolled forward like four cars. And then like 10 minutes later, it was like, who the hell drained their freaking coolant in the staging lane? I don't know. Some random guy, I guess. You know, and, and I think currently to, today, and, you know, drag racing, is it's fun, but I'll be honest with you, it's it doesn't get me like, you know, off-road racing does. And I only do it to spend time with my dad, my brother, and, you know, now my nephew. And I think now just a weekend at the racetrack, with my dad, brother, and nephew, and watching him grow up around cars and start to respect cars, and uh, I think that's that's pretty important to me. And I wish I could be a spectator because it'd be a lot cheaper on my uh, car habits. But I'm not a spectator, so you know I, I do have a drag a drag car that I uh, take to those events with them, just because I can't really sit around and watch. You know, it's not my I'm not it's not my style at all. But sure. Um, as my nephew gets older and, and starts racing, I'm sure I will be the one that uh, kind of crew chiefs for him, so my brother can race. Because my brother really does enjoy the drag racing thing. That's kind of his gig, not mine. Mm -hmm. Well, I think since we got some time here, I would like to talk about, cause I get asked all the time. So I'm into side by sides because of you. Um, I was big into Jeeps. Like we were talking about, how'd you do those shocks for me? And, uh, I think you were like the furthest thing away from a Jeep guy. Um, it's come around a little bit, but yeah, because, like the Jeep guys, historically speaking, are rude. Don't. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm joking. I'm not joking, but I am joking. On the trail, they are. Um, See, that's because the Jeep guys call razors trail fleas. Uh, so, 
there's there's no no love lost between razor guys and jeep guys out on the trail um two completely different styles they're slow and they they do not get along so my whole family growing up with jeeps and stuff i always looked at the the dirt bikes and the four-wheelers as nuisances and that's what you cut your teeth on and then fast forward into the side-by-sides which is really kind of a hybrid between both sports absolutely it's it's very much like the out of the box trophy truck today you know so I'll never forget the first time I rode in your 2008 Razor 800. We were at the Badlands, a place I've been a million times. And I still, to this point, hated Razors. I thought, what are we freaking doing here? This is a Jeep park. These Razors have no business being here. And Cody was like, climb it. Just, just get in, buckle up, shut up, sit down, hang on. So we take off, tear, and it felt like a million mile an hour an hour but it was a razor 800 so it's probably like 30 or 40 maybe yeah. um we go tearing across this road and if you ever been to the badlands that's changed a lot since this has taken place but there's like a pavement kind of section that goes off into the park and then off the side of the pavement are all these whoops like the dirt bike guys just bap, 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 just yep. just yep. kiss the tops of them as they go through and i was riding passenger and cody's hauling ass down this you know, paved road and he just dips off into the whoops. And I just remember like my whole body just tensed up. Like I was going to just roll a million times and die and nothing happened. I, I look up and we're just going across these whoops. Like it was no big deal. And I look over at Cody and he's smiling from ear to ear. And I was like, what just happened? And he's like, this is a razor bud. And <laughs> we just, like I was hooked from that moment on. So now because of you, I've got a razor and we do a lot of razor stuff together. And, you know, throughout my day to day, as I'm sure you do too, I get asked a lot of times and sometimes I don't get asked. I just volunteer my opinion. Um, you know, what kind of side by side should I buy? And I, I, you know, I've come away with a lot of opinions, mostly from you and from being, doing the kind of writing that we do. And, I'll get, hey, I think I should buy X, Y, or Z. And I'll say, no, you shouldn't. And here's why. So what I'd like to do is kind of have an episode devoted to the different types of side-by-sides and why you should buy a specific kind over another for whatever purpose. That way I can kind of point back like, hey, here's a really good explanation. So again, number one question is, what type of side-by-side should I buy? And there's two main types of side-by-sides. There's utility and sport and then this has been from day one the side-by-sides and here recently in the past few years they've had a sport utility they would call it a sport utility kind of a a meld of of both worlds and they all have their place in the marketplace and they all sell very well regardless of brand Um, but obviously Cody and I are Polaris people Cody you make your living with Polaris absolutely so Let's let's talk first about my least favorite being the utilities. Where and when should a guy buy a utility side by side? So I think so to to back that up just a little bit farther there on that is is what I would like everyone to know that's listening, especially if you're in the market, never listen to the salesman at the dealership. Okay. Ever. Um, because he's going to sell you what he A either has or be what he thinks you need to have, and he doesn't know what you need to have because he's not a UTV rider himself. Absolutely. At least, I mean, most dealerships everywhere around this area um, is that way. 
So the utility machine is an absolute phenomenal machine for a guy that is strictly using it 100% for utility use to get around the farm, to do work, whether it be through the woods or hunting or, or whatever. I mean, that's a that's more of a strictly utility. I'm never going to go recreational riding with my friends. I just says 100% work, no play kind of thing. Okay. Now, I've recently purchased one of those because I have a um, – very, I would, I would call it a high-end taste, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. And they now have a utility version with heat and AC and full doors and power windows and blah, blah, blah. And being out in Johnson Valley for three weeks where it's cold, uh, it's going to be nice having a full cab that can seat six people and heater and, you know, all the fun stuff. They've had those for years. They're called Jeeps. <laughs> so in this case, you have a very specific utilitarian purpose for this machine yeah exactly i mean it's not something that i would uh we can we can circle back around to my future use for that but uh um yeah i mean it's a it's a utility machine it's what it's for is to haul people around and to not play with you know they're not designed to to trail ride they're not designed to go out and go out and play they're not comfortable the seats up high you know very conventional style bench seating. You're not sitting in it. You're sitting on top of it, so on and so forth. And these machines have very limited travel. suspension travel, smaller tire sizes. Gearing is way weird in them, you know. But they, they do one thing really well, and that is get you from A to B and able to do work with it. So oh, Yeah, great. I mean, they make now, you know, electric hydraulic dumping beds and, you know, all the, all the stuff for us. They're very easy to get in and out of. So if you're, you know you know, excuse me, have trouble getting in and out of something. It's a very natural, easy seating position. Um, especially like, like your father-in-law who runs cattle, he has a ranger now for going out and tending his calves and things because he's in and out of it all the time. And he used to be strictly four wheeler for the, he likes how fast he can get in and out of the ranger. Yep. So he had a four wheeler cause he thought, you know, I just get need, I need to hop off it real fast and go tend to a cow or whatever. Well, now that the, he's got the ranger, he realizes that, that he can do the work that he needs to do because of the ease of getting in and out. Uh-huh. So the opposite end of that spectrum. Well, is, hold on a second. I got a question. Okay. So on the utility, like the, the deer hunting market and maybe more like, uh, uh, like homesteading and stuff is real big. You know, would you recommend using one of those to like work ground to plant food plots and stuff? Or do, is it still, is that still a better job for a tractor or do, or do some of those, are they, are they more tractor like than ATV like? Yeah. Or what, what's kind of your opinion on that? I would say for sure, you know, the utility style machines, you know, or the way that they're designed is very, very much, you know, a, a workhorse and is able to do all the above. But, you know, Sam started out with like, you know, tell me about the utility machine. The first question I always ask a, a new buyer or, or someone that's had one and looking to change is like, what is your riding style? What are you going to do with this thing? You know, tell me, tell me what you're going to do with it. And everyone defaultly thinks they need a bed that dumps. And it's almost the biggest joke in, you know, in the, in my industry is like, everyone wants a dump bed, but the amount of people that literally pull the dump lever on their bed to utilize it to do more than wash the beer cans out of the back of it is next to none. I mean, it's the, the market that literally uses a dump bed for a dump bed's worth is minimal, very minuscule in the market of people that think they need one. I think know? the biggest thing, and 
putting words in every one of my people's mouth that, that comes to me with this is they need to find a reason to justify it. And in their mind, whether intentional or unintentional, they feel like if they've got a dump bed, they've bought a tractor that they can justify owning. Pick up sticks in the yard and need to dump my bed, blah, blah, blah. And, yeah. and, and in my opinion, the only justification that you need is you want it. Yes, me and Dozer had that. We had this conversation today, yeah, this morning, in fact. Today, you know, Randy Dodsbrock would say, "Is everything? Nothing I do makes sense, but it's what I want to do, so it doesn't need to make sense. I don't need to make it make sense for me to do it. Just because what I do. because I want to is a reason. Yeah. Sure, and you don't have to be, you know, oh, for the kids or for the family or you know, I do it for this or do it for that. Like, no, I <clears throat> I want to go jeeping, so I got a jeep. Like that, that's why I do it. You know, and. To step forward a little bit here so, you know, anyone listening can kind of understand where I'm coming from on this is, is the utility machine is the worst machine to trail ride with there is. They make so much better machine to trail ride with that's so much safer in the trail also when we want to talk about getting a little bit of a safety aspect because, as you guys know, I'm pretty keen on, on safety stuff. So, you know, it's a, it's a much more forgiving machine and stuff, and the utility machine is not that machine. So everyone wants to run out and buy the Ranger are the you know commander or the kawasaki's version that what is it the the terex now um that's what they all want because the pioneer the, bed, the pioneer the bed dumps well let's talk about how much you really use that dumb bed compared to what you're giving away on the other aspect because that's what you actually use the machine for mm-hmm. do you think there's different classes of utility because like to me i've been in some kubota side-by-sides and I feel like the Kubotas and like your John Deere Gators are more tractor-like or your so. Polaris Rangers are more four-wheeler-like. Yeah, so I would say 100%, you know, there's the, there's the mules, the, uh, the, the Gators, the Kubotas, uh, now the Bobcats. Those are 100% like workhorse only, 30 mile an hour top speed kind of thing. Like and a then, Bobcat, you can get like a loader for the front of it, Oh, yeah, right? they have hydraulic setups on them now. So, you know, and then the, the Ranger, it's a little bit more creature comfort. He actually has cup holders and some things like that. That is, uh, makes it a little bit more of a trail machine. But again, a lot of people buy the, the, the generals. Um, that's a very popular machine and it's a good machine. I'm not, I'm not down on the general whatsoever, but most of your general riders need a sport, a full sport utility. 99.9% of people that our own a crossover, meaning a sport utility machine needs to be in a full sport machine. And I don't, when I say sport, like I'm not talking about like 400EX race quad sport. I mean, yeah, these, these sport UTVs have the capabilities of that, but they're much more than that. You know, you're, you're not, you don't, you know, back in the day when you rode a sport ATV, you know, you had no fender coverage. You might get mud all over the place. No reverse. (laughs) It's not like that no more, you know? So, so I ride a 2020 Polaris Pro XP and that is a turbocharged two seat not a race machine but it's a full sport machine you've since upgraded to the new Polaris Pro R which is a is a four cylinder and and it is by far a full race machine yeah I mean it's yeah, it's naturally aspirated. I mean, it's it's the latest and the greatest as far as the sport thing goes. But, I mean, so let's talk about creature comfort. You know, it's got in-dash Wi-Fi. It's got navigation. Um, you know, it has heated seats with air lumbar support in them. You know, so 
you talk about creature comfort, uh, UTV riding. Like, I wonder why they're 50K. <laughs> so the, the biggest thing, which we can talk about a bunch of different things, but the biggest thing for me and the people that I talk to about side-by-side riding, the trail riding thing is probably a one to five times a year type of event type of event for them and when i i have this conversation i say what are you going to be doing with it? oh i'm going to be working in the yard and i'm going to do this i'm going to do that and i say no you're not you know i know what you're going to do with it you're going to hop in it throw a cooler in the back and you're going to go road tripping with your buddies and they're side by sides well well yeah yeah we'll, we'll do that and I, and so i you know i make you know, whoever, depending on the customer or, or individual, you know, I try to tailor the story for them, but the, you know, the, the broad strokes is, so you're going out on this cruise with all your friends and what do they ride? And they tell, well, he's got a Razor 1000. He's got a Razor Turbo. He's got a General. He's got a this, he's got a that. And I said, okay, so you're going on a, you know, a drive with your friends and they've all got a new Camaro, a new Charger, you know, a new challenger and you've got a Astro van. Like, like, yeah, <laughs> the bed dumps, you can, you can do the speed limit and you can hang with them, but you're going to be maxing that thing out. You know, would you want to run something at a hundred percent capacity all day? Or would you want to run something at 40% capacity all day? And I, you know, I said that the two times a year that you're going to pick up sticks in your yard, it's got a, a, a pull point in the back. Pull a little yard trailer. They throw got your, beds. Throw, they just throw, don't your, throw your sticks in a yard trailer or, or yeah, or use the small bed. And, you know, uh, you know well, no, because, and, and like I said, they're, they're trying to justify it, which is fine. You know, however you got to justify it, that's fine. But the biggest thing that you said to me that has really resonated is if I got in a Polaris Ranger, and I took it on a trail ride, I would be in okay kind of not really in danger, but not really safe as far as, you know, navigating a a very difficult trail versus an inexperienced rider would be arguably very unsafe. Exactly. Whereas this is where this comes really into full circle here. What you're about ready to say. Whereas, you, a super experienced rider, could do just about anything with that Ranger, but you have years and hundreds and maybe thousands of miles of experience behind the wheel of a side-by-side that you can feel the machine and what it's doing. And I've been with you before where me in the same situation, I'd have dumped it, rolled it, flipped it, whatever, and you've been able to save it because of that experience. And you told me, that the difference between the suspension travel and the utility and the sport is so great that it becomes much more forgiving. So talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So that's, and that's exactly right. That's why I always say that, you know, like a lot of times a new, a novice owner will go into the dealership and they advise them to buy the trail or the crossover with minimal suspension travel. And these are new riders and they're not as forgiving. What I mean by forgiving is, you know, these new machines, the sport machines, they got 21 inches of suspension travel, meaning the wheels will drop 21 inches and still be planted on the ground. You know, it has that much droop, you know, per, per, uh, you know, per axle point where the utility division maybe have six. So 
if you drop a wheel, a hole, uh, a wheel in a hole on a on a ranger, you could be three wheeling real easy. You could fall two foot into a hole on a on a razor and and not even hardly know you're in the hole. You know, absolutely. Um, so, as an inexperienced rider, and especially I'd say this about young kids, I think the most the safest machine for a for a eight to ten year old boy is a Razor One Thousand XP because it's the most forgiving machine out there you know that it doesn't take a lot of experience to operate that machine a lot of these parents want to put these kids on a on a 570 with minimal travel and uh yeah the razor can go faster i mean i think you got to teach your kid to respect the speed of it but as far as like the articulation of the vehicle and how it handles and how much better the power steering is and um, how much bigger the brakes are it's a su- it's such a safer machine to own over you know the the rangers or even the generals or so on and so forth just because of the travel the suspension has how the chassis are set up your seating position in them you're sitting you know more in the middle of the vehicle more reclined uh you know they're just designed not to roll you know the sport ones are designed to have a low center of gravity a a non-roll point where the even the crossovers and the utility divisions they don't they don't put that technology in them from the from the factory it's not a concern they have and and I, that's another argument that I've failed to have a lot is the, the brakes is probably after seatbelts brakes is probably the number two safety feature of, of a vehicle in general, car, truck, SUV, side by side. You know, if you get into a particularly sticky situation, if you have the braking power to, you know, prevent yourself from, you know, coming too close to quote unquote, the edge, you know, you got way bigger brakes, more pistons, more braking power in that sport side-by-side. You know, if you do have your 8, 10-year-old kid out there and he maybe is taking a little too fast and the dog jumps out or, or another side-by-side jumps out in a Ranger, the stopping distance at the same speed is going to be, what, way maybe double? Yeah, yeah. Way, way greater. You know, and it's kind of, I always kind of chuckle at these guys when they, you know, kind of novice by and they they buy what the dealership points them in is the, you know, the 900 trails or the 900 S's and they don't buy the 1000 XP because they don't need 30 inch tires and they don't need 12 foot, you know, 12 inches of ground clearance. And, you know, they don't need the, to go 70 mile an hour, but then the first accessories they buy are big tires and lift kits to get the 12 inches of ground clearance. Like you just spent the money and difference in accessories. You could have bought the better machine from the get go. So, you know, I always say like, make sure you, you talk to someone that's a, you know, an avid rider before you go purchase. And most times the salespeople are not, are not those people, you know, many, many times someone will come in and they'll kind of consult with me on what to buy. They go up the street to the dealership and they come back. Well, I bought a 900 trail. That's what the salesman said I needed. Like, Oh man. And then what do we do? We do a lift kit. So they get more ground clearance. We do bigger tires on it so they can get, you know, so they can be like the one, have the 1000 suspension. And the next thing you know, a couple of years later, they realize they needed that and they go buy the 1000 anyway. That's Cody's biggest pet peeve is he, he will help anybody out, but his biggest pet peeve is when you ask him for advice, he gives you good advice and then you don't take it. Yeah. <laughs> that, yeah. That and then you come back mad that it like, man, I should have bought the 1000. Well, I don't know. Dude, I told you, man, I told you. And another thing when you're talking about this is I remember going down to Tennessee the very first time we rode razors and we all, were all in um, the pros and Brett was riding with us in his general and we would stop and wait for him and, and he's, man, I'm getting beat up here and we're just cruising you know along, listening to music. You now what's funny is the very next 
time he bought a machine, he bought a 1000 XP after he rode with us on that trip. Mm -hmm. You know, prior to that trip, he rode with all people that had generals. So he didn't realize that you could go five more mile an hour down the trail and not get beat up. You know, we actually switched. I switched Brett machines. Oh, yes. I remember that when you got done, you're like, get me out of this thing. Yeah, rough riding beats you up to death, you know. And and, I the, always, and the general is the crossover. Yeah, and I always tell people this. If for any reason whatsoever, your wife or girlfriend will love you to death if you get a 1,000 XP or a sport model of any, of any kind for that matter because the ride is 10 times better than the latest and the greatest crossover model there is, period. The caveat to that is she needs to ride in the shit one first because Amanda enjoys it, but she's like, man, I'm getting, I'm kind of getting beat up. And I'm like, you should be in that machine over there and try that. You know, she, she doesn't respect the fact that how nice it is because I've, you know, I've invested in, in, in the more sport sport model. So not, not that we're Polaris fanboys, which you are. Um, but there's, there's other options available that, if you're not a Polaris guy that are still better. No. And, and I'll, uh, I'll tell you straight up. I'll, I'll tell you why I'm a Polaris guy. Um, I think their technology is years ahead of everybody else currently right now. I mean, again, my new machine has, has Wi-Fi in the navigational dash, which some people are like, I don't need that in a UTV. Well, maybe you don't, but Polaris has that technology. Some people right do right now. You know what I mean? Um, the eight and a half inch touchscreen dash is, nothing to joke about i mean you you think it's like kind of extra until you're in a honda like the new honda talon has the same dash that the 2008 420 rancher has in it that shows you your speedometer and your miles and your hours and your gas gauge and it is like two inches by three inches mm -hmm. and it's just that small technology stuff there and then you know players has live valve suspension now compression and rebound where you can adjust the suspension on the fly and uh they're just so far ahead of others in in their class. Now, Can-Am is giving them a deep run for their money right now. I will say that hands down. Um, Can-Am makes a really good product. Uh, probably in the sport category, in certain aspects, the Can-Am is a, is a better machine. But the cost of ownership of the Can-Am is, is three times the players. You know, you need a Can-Am wheel bearing, it's 100 bucks. You need a player's wheel bearing, it's 30 bucks. You need a Can-Am dry belt, it's $100 more than the player's one, you know? And then a lot of people want to talk about, oh, I don't want to, I don't want a drive belt. I want a Honda with no drive belt. Well, I tell you what, Honda makes a really nice machine, very reliable. If they would put a CVT clutch on it, meaning a, a drive belt style clutch on it, they would have something. Sure. But they're trying to run off of the whole like, you know, Honda don't have drive belt thing, because back in the day, you know, in the early 2000s, drive belts were a nightmare. They they didn't work. You know. Yep. Since then, the technology's out. They work hands down. They work. Honda's losing so much horsepower through trying to turn their massive hydraulic clutching system they got on those things. And they take, you know, six quarts of oil with three oil filters to try to run this automatic transmission within the engine. It just doesn't work. It's, it's, if they would put a CVT clutch on that Honda, they would have something, but they, they don't, you know? So, so one thing that I always point back to when asked is I think you had the figure a couple of years ago that Polaris sold more units than every other manufacturer combined. Yeah. So like in our district, which is five States, um, Polaris sold 166,000 more machines than the next closest competitor. 
And a little bonus round here. If anyone wants to email in there, if they know the answer before I say this, but the second closest competitor is John Deere. Okay. And then I, it's like, I don't remember this for sure, but it can am is like third. And then it's like Kawasaki Honda, you know, like I think even it's John Deere and it's some other one that you would never even think of is third place. It's above can am. Um, but like Cub Cadet or something. something crazy like that. It's a it's a much utility you know thing, um, utility of deep utility machine that you would never guess the sales are that high. So what that also means, Sam, though, is the aftermarket support is out there times that much more for the players. Well, absolutely, and and I use this the analogy of you know Chevy parts are cheap. I mean, you go to anywhere any swap meet and you can buy a set of heads or valve covers for a small block Chevy. You can't do that for a Mopar. It's the same thing. Polaris can't am. There's so many Polaris's out there that you, you go know, to a riding park and break down the local dealer in the area is probably going to have the axle shaft you need, or probably going to have the drive bill you need because there's so many of them out there. Yeah. So if I'm manufacturing aftermarket parts, I'm looking at the sales numbers and I've got 25 times potential customers for my Polaris products than I do for anything else. What do you think I'm going to focus all my time on? And even if you do have a Can-Am or Honda-specific aftermarket company, the sheer volume difference between the two companies is going to make the price difference pretty substantial. Yeah, I mean, it definitely is. And it's just, you know, Players has their downfalls. I'll be the first to tell you. I can almost tell you every downfall on the Players, you know. Um, at the end of the day, though, if you look, step back and grade it from a holy, I, I believe it is hands down the, the most out of the box, best machine money can buy. And cost of ownership is going to be the least, you know. So it's, so it's high value. It's got Very good value. High value. Yeah. So another thing that I get asked a lot is, you know, you're just a Polaris guy. Like Polaris, you know when I was buying four wheelers was the junkiest brand ever. And I mean, like you were saying earlier, they have the most product innovation of any company out there that it was like three years ago when the pro XP came out, it was 2020 when the pro XP came out, they advertised that their Polaris 170 had ride command geofencing. Yeah. It was just such cool technology. I mean, and if you guys don't know what that is, is it's basically, they have they put the ride command unit in the in the youth model, so you can control from your phone sitting on your couch how fast Junior can go around the grass the yard, and then also you can set a perimeter. So if you don't want him to go near the road, it'll slow the vehicle down, you know, ten or fifteen feet away from the road, and will not let it cross the line. It'll it'll die. The machine will shut off and not cross the fence that you that you geo fence that you put up for it. So again. I'm big on safety. I have been hurt really bad riding these things and uh, over the years, you know, and I think that that is amazing technology as a, as a, as a company to design in a youth model to keep parent under control. You can see if Junior's doing donuts in the yard or what he's doing, you know, you don't even have to be out there watching him because you can keep a track of it on your phone what, you know, what's going on. So speaking of safety, we probably have a lot of listeners that don't even ever been around side-by-sides. I'll put their seatbelt on, they get in one or put their seatbelt on when they get one. And, and you preach this, I preach this to everybody. I have firsthand experience where seatbelts are imperative. I and, don't care if you're going down the driveway. And it's, you know, for anyone who doesn't know, 
you know, you see on Facebook and the internet, people get hurt all the time riding side by sides. And the number one injury is broken arms from people sticking their hands outside the vehicle. And in a rollover situation, it's like kind of, you know, you, when you grow up riding, when you rode dirt bikes, four wheelers and stuff, you know, you put your leg out or your arm out to, you know, catch it. But you're going from a 300 pound ATV to a 1800 pound side by side. You're not stopping it. You're not stopping it. So, the number one thing that I preach to everybody is is seatbelts, seatbelts, seatbelts. The only time I don't have a seatbelt on in my side by side is putting it on the trailer. And arguably, <laughs> you should have one doing that. You run into me a couple times. Yeah. So I I'll share you a short story here. I was riding at your mom's house with your brother in your 08 800, and we were just cruising the roads up and down. Went to the neighbor's house, and we were just talking out in the pasture, you know, just BSing. What most people do with UTVs. And, you know, just like I said, just just a short little cruise literally to the neighbor's house. And I was driving, girlfriend was in the passenger seat, and I was, you know, window to window cop style with your little brother. And he takes off to head home. And I kind of try to whip a shitty and kick it around to follow him back. And I break an axle shaft. Well, when I broke the axle shaft, the wheel stopped spinning and my power slide turned into a tip and I panicked and hit the brake, which is what you don't do. And it just ever so slightly, so gingerly tipped on its side and I didn't wear my seatbelt. Girlfriend wasn't wearing her seatbelt. I fell into the passenger seat and the grab bar poked me in the side and I was like, oh man, that kind of hurt, you know? And my girlfriend's like, um, um, I'm... I'm kind of hurt too, and I look down, and the roll bars across her arm broke her arm in half, literally clean in half, like dangling by the muscles. It was disgusting. I was freaking out, picked the side-by-side up off of her, rushed her to the hospital, and, you know, she had screws and pins and casts and everything, and all that, all that hassle, all that, you know, trip to the emergency room, all that recovery time, all it would have taken was two seconds to put a seatbelt on. And she flopped out of her seat and got underneath the roll underneath the roll bar and caused all this damage for a two second seatbelt. And if you're properly strapped into a side by side. You can flip and flop a lot and not get hurt. You I you mean a lot. So you took the race machine out and you and your wife rolled how many times when we were by ourselves it was and this was years ago but i mean it was probably five or six times forward end over end um both strapped in you know no one hurt walked away from it and i've seen a lot of those accidents like that and you know it comes down to like a lot of your guys that just are weekend warriors you know they, they're uncomfortable i don't wear my seatbelt. like get a set of harnesses mm-hmm. three inch cushion pad you know you don't think you need harnesses because you're not racing or you're not hill climbing but man it only takes that one time of being flopped on your side and head injuries, man, heads against the roll bar. I mean, I've been to many funerals because of seatbelts, and I, I really struggle with it because I know people have gotten really, really hurt, and I'm like, man, if you had just put your seatbelt on, this could have been prevented, you know? They're not uncomfortable. If you get a good set of harnesses, they're not uncomfortable. You can't, that's not an excuse you can never wear with me. They're not uncomfortable. Snap them on. Mm-hmm. So the story on this subject that sticks out in my mind is when we went out to KOH maybe the second year when Cody was racing, we had a team meeting like the first day, you know, Cody had several machines out there. 
what he's like, take any machine you want, go out in the desert, have fun, wear your helmet and your seatbelt. If you get in an accident and you don't have your helmet and your seatbelt on and you live, I will beat you to death. Yeah. (laughs) I I just remember that like it was yesterday. I think he said something like, I will pull you out of the machine and if you're not dead, I will beat you to death. And I was like, okay, helmet and seatbelt it is. You know, and a lot of people kind of roll their eyes at that. But understand, like, this is what I do for a living, you know. Um, And when statistics start rolling up and hire more people get hurt, like, it starts jeopardizing what I do for a living. I mean, the the government has a lot of control on what we do today and has the ability to outlaw things. And outlawing an off-road vehicle is something that they would do. I mean, that's something. Well, they have done. Yeah. The three-wheeler. Right? Was that the government? Yep. So, you know, that's something that I, I'm very passionate about and I don't want to see anyone get hurt. And, you know, at the end of the day, like a major injury, you know, even a broken arm, I don't know if that particular girl's ever even rode in one or wants to ride in one again. It, it makes people never want to do it again when they get hurt bad or see someone they love get hurt bad. It gives them a bad name. And, you know, anything you got a hobby for or a passion about, you never want to see have a bad name. Look at the gun owners out there. Most gun owners, you know, are very passionate about gun safety because it's what they love to do and they don't want guns to get a bad name. And it's the same thing with wearing seatbelts for me, you know? Like, if you own a gun and you wouldn't leave it loaded with the safety off around a child, like, put your child in a seatbelt in the UTV, which most people don't, you know? Like, it's kind of the same aspect in my world. is just mm-hmm. buckle them up, keep them safe, you know? Yeah. I don't I, want to see anybody get hurt. I, I preach it to everybody, probably, you know, I, I'm not going to say more than I should because I probably should preach it more, but... If, you know, I get a Snapchat from a buddy out drinking beer in a side-by-side, you know, little Honda Pioneer or something, and they're drinking, like, not only are you drinking and riding, which is not something you should be doing. We've all done it. We it's, all do, yep. It's, it's not something that, you know, I, I actively seek out to do, but, like, these people are obviously out here having a good time or whatever, and I'm not trying to rain on your parade, but if you send me a Snapchat of you in a side-by-side and there's no seatbelt on, I'm snapping you back. Put your effing seatbelt on because, you know, just driving down the road, a deer could jump out or somebody somebody could, you know, and I've heard stories. I've never, you know, personally seen this happen in in front of me, but I've got a customer that was drinking and riding, not wearing a seatbelt, and he whatever reason i don't know he he leaned or did something and he was riding by himself in a polaris ranger no seat belt balled it up in a ditch he was off work for like six months could have been forever yeah so and you know what the funniest thing is like we know we go to these riding parks and stuff and especially when i ride local you know everyone's like oh man you're crazy i would never do any of that stuff that you would do you know blah 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 like guys like with my riding style are the guys who get hurt the least Absolutely. I would never in a million years ride without a seatbelt on, you know, down the road. And those are the people that get hurt. I mean, very, very rarely are guys that are riding to my caliper of riding are getting hurt because we have the proper safety equipment. We, you know, we're, we're doing all the right things to that point. It's the guys that are watching us that get hurt because Mm -hmm. they take safety as like a a backseat and it's like not something they need to do because they're not riding crazy. They don't go up that big hill. Well, you don't get hurt going up the big hill. You get hurt. Whenever you, uh, you know, drop your wheel off the side of the trail and, you know, flip end over end and no one's seatbelted in, you know. Well, that happened last year at KOH. I mean, we're out there pre-running, you know, all the safety stuff. And all of a sudden, helicopter comes in. What happened? Well, 
two spectators were out riding side by sides and going too fast in the dust and they collided. No one was wearing seatbelts and now the helicopter's coming in. We could talk about this for hours, so we better get off a dead horse. Well, one more thing I want to talk about is before the side-by-side thing is Cody was always a big uh, proponent of helmets too. And you actually saved Sam's life <laughs> probably more than likely. Oh, 100% you did. Yeah. So, um, again, I have been hurt really bad over the years in my industry, and I have seen a lot of people be hurt really bad. Um, I wasn't always doing the right things and taking the right steps in order to have the right equipment at the time whenever I was getting as hurt as I was. But um, Sam and I think it was Dylan, right? We ride with Dylan. Mm-hmm. Um, we're riding, riding street bikes. Street bikes. And I had ordered Sam a, like a really fancy helmet and had not come in yet. And – Sam, I rode. I rode to the shop to see if it did. Yeah, you come to the shop to see if that you had just got a street bike. And you rode to the shop to see if your helmet came in. It was not in yet, and you and Dylan were going to go for a ride that night. And I said, "Dude, take my helmet. Don't ride without a helmet. Like that's silly. Take my helmet." And uh, I'll never forget. I send Sam and Dylan off. I don't know, probably chasing girls at the time, uh, on their street bikes, and I was closing the shop down, and all of a sudden I hear ambulances. And I just had an instant gut feeling at that moment that that was Sam or Dylan because it was like they were ambulance were going the right way that they were going, and sure enough, it was Sam. And dude, you were doing nothing wrong. You hit a six by six or a four by four in the middle of the road. You yep. were doing nothing wrong at all. Nothing on nothing that you could absolutely control to stop what happened to you that day. And that helmet had quite a bit of road rash on it. Yeah, it it, it it may not have killed me, but I'd have felt way worse. I didn't feel good. I mean, you're ugly, but you've been real ugly. <laughs> that ain't no shit. I don't remember, because that's you were you were young and 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 bulletproof. Oh yeah. And I remember talking to Cody a few times, and we're like, "Dude, Sam's gonna kill himself." And you would call me. You're like, "Sam was in an accident," and it was two nights before my wedding. I still remember it. And I went to the, I was like, okay, well, where is it? And they're like, well, it's on Evergreen, but he's already in the ambulance. Go, I think Cody called me to find your dad. I did. Cause that's what I called you for. You're like, call your dad. So, uh, anyway, I called your dad and, and he got headed this way. And I remember going to the hospital. And then once we figured out that, okay, Sam, you know, they didn't pick him up with a shovel. <laughs> yeah. We took uh, pictures of it in this box. Yeah, I still got that bit. picture. We had a <laughs> <laughs> but that is the Never thumbnail. Seen. But I, yeah. I walked in the emergency room. They're like, oh, are you family? And no, no, just his friend, you know. Was, and uh, somehow I got back in the emergency room, and you are still strapped to the board because I don't think maybe they haven't done any x-rays or anything yet. Right. And uh, they had given you a ton of painkiller, and I walked in. I was like, dude, Sam, you were in your underwear. Like, dude, Sam, you have a raging boner right now. <laughs> You're like, oh my god, really? I was like, nah, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh shoot. shoot, what are friends for, right? Right. Uh, I mean, it is worth the story. I don't know what your bills were for the hospital, but it is worth. Did the he had a whole summer off. He like went jet skiing at the Ozarks. Pretty <laughs> much lived at the Ozarks, and I mean, he was living a oh, life back then. Sam, you can't be on disability and be posting pictures on Facebook at jet sure skiing. I can. Watch yeah, why me, not? Sam, why not? Listen, I wanted to go back to work. They wouldn't let me. <laughs> that, they, I, I, I was bored as shit. I, I worked for Cody for free for like I do remember a while. Kind of like your gopher. He just did your driving and yeah. stuff. And Yeah, I went to – I will never forget. I went to Terre Haute to get VP Racing Fuel. I back up to the loading dock, and I was like, I'm here to get Racing Fuel. I hand him the ticket or whatever. He's like, all right, there's that. There was like four 54-gallon drums of Racing Fuel. He's like, all right, there you go. And I'm like – can I get a hand? He's like, 
what for? I'm like, I'm in a sling. My left arm's in a sling. I'm like, I, I can't really load this by myself. <laughs> yeah. Oh. oh, man. Good times. Anymore. So anyway, to sum that up, if I was to tell anyone what to buy, I would tell them to buy a base model 1000 XP because that's the most entry-level, cheapest machine you can get into. Although the new KRX 1000 is growing on me heavy because it is an awesome, absolutely awesome machine. Lots of travel, really good um, handling, and price point is heck. So, so and the cage be low proud. Actually, we looked at that. It is a bolt-on cage. So, as uh, I'm sure players are going to change the the roll cage design this next year, I probably need to get on top of that and check it out. So, in summary, um, we want everyone who's in the market for a side-by-side to buy the right machine the first time and not regret their purchase. So if you're in the market or would like to just chat about side-by-sides, um, we are pretty passionate about them. If you can't tell, just reach out and I'd be happy to talk to you about them. Um, Cody is a extremely large wealth of knowledge as far as side-by-sides concerned. He makes his living off of them. So um, if you have any questions, comments about side-by-sides, which one to buy, which one's right for you, get a hold of us. Be happy to help. And uh, if you just want to reach out and tell us your side-by-side story, or I'm sure everybody listening probably knows of somebody who's been hurt or killed riding a side-by-side, um, that's the last thing we want anybody to do. So if you have any questions about side-by-side safety, um, I'm always available to tell you to put your seatbelt on. So, um, reach out, ask short story long at gmail.com and, uh, we'll get back with you as soon as we can. And, uh, guys, thanks for listening. Have a good one. We'll talk to you later. See you later guys. Thanks for having me for sure. Probably be back. Yeah. Thanks for coming finally. So we'll do, we'll do it again soon. We'll see you guys. I've been searching for something, something never comes, never leads to nothing, nothing satisfies, but I'm getting close closer to the prize at the end of the rope all night long a dream of the day when it comes around and it's taken away leaves me with the feeling that i feel the most feel it come to life when i see your ghost
been searching for something Something never comes, never leads to nothing Nothing satisfies, but I'm getting close Closer to the prize at the end of the rope All night long, I dream of the day When it comes around and it's taken away Leaves me with the feeling that I feel the most Feel it come to life when I see your ghost Then I'm done 